Good morning again to you. It's good to see you this morning. I was telling Kat as we were getting ready to go that though we only missed one week because of the ice, it feels like we've been gone for so long. And um, and it's just good to be back. It's good to be with you all and to gather as God's people. So uh, I'm glad to see you all. Um, My name is Penny and I'm the pastor. So if you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, hopefully you didn't show up last week thinking we were, would be here, uh, but uh, it is good to see you this morning. Well, friends, if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you've been with us for the last number of months, then you know that uh, before the Advent season, we were in the book of Ephesians, and we went ahead and took a pause, a little break during Advent to look at the first couple of chapters of Luke. And So it feels like it's been many months, like it's an eternity ago since we were last in Ephesians, and maybe you were thinking that uh, that this was like those books on our shelves, or at least on my shelf, that that you start reading and you you put it away and you leave the bookmark there, and you'll get to it one day, but you know that really you'll pass it on to your children, and and that bookmark will still be there. Uh, maybe you're starting to think that's what Ephesians was going to be like, but, um, but have no fear. Uh, we're returning to it, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. Um, and because it's been a number of weeks, it's important for us to, to be reminded where we've been and why we're in the book of Ephesians. If you remember, uh, this book is a letter. It's a letter of love by the Apostle Paul to this church that is seeking to learn what it looks like and what it means to live as God's people. Jewish and Gentile believers who are coming together, these people with uh, different histories and heritages, these people of different ethnicities, they're coming together, and the only thing that they have in common is the gospel, that Jesus has called them to be his own. And they're trying to figure out what that looks like. How are they to live? What does it mean for them to be the church? And so Paul tells them, the first three chapters are Paul dealing with who they are, that they are those that God has determined, elected from eternity past to shower with grace, and that they are those that have received the grace of our Lord Jesus and have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. The second three chapters are now dealing with how we live that out. What does that mean for us as God's people, as, as those who have been renewed by the grace of Christ? How are we to live in light of that renewal? And That's where we pick up in chapter 4. And so if you would, please read with me, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Over the last couple of weeks, I, I decided that it was time to reread uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. 
And so I've gone back and I've started reading those books that I'm not as familiar with. I, I read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe all the time, but it had been uh, what seemed to be many years. It was probably just a couple, but since I had last read The Horse and His Boy and Prince Caspian, and now I'm in the silver chair. So, so I'm just warning y'all, in the coming weeks, <laughs> uh, maybe I need to, I, I don't need to apologize because I'm not sure we can have too much Aslan and Narnia and Lewis, but, but it may be coming. And so we'll just jump off and go ahead and, and talk about Caspian this morning. You know, one of the things I forgot about the book, Prince Caspian, is how sad the state of Narnia is in the beginning of the book. Remember, Narnia is this magical place where Aslan rules and where the kings Peter and Edmund and the queen Susan and Lucy, they, they reign over this wonderful land of talking beasts and moving trees, this wonderful place. But, but Prince Caspian is actually a sad Sad time in the life of Narnia because the children have been gone. The kings and the queens, they're, they're, they haven't been there for many years. It's actually only been one year in human years, but it's hundreds of years in Narnian years. And to make matters worse, Aslan has been gone. In fact, his departure has been gone for so long that, that the people have stopped remembering They've started to forget who he was and the history, this, this person who is Aslan, this great lion who ruled over Narnia, he's gone from history to, to myth and myth to fable. And now they're not even sure he really ever existed. He seems so far in the past and, and the, the land of Narnia, the people of Narnia, they're, they're no longer living in light of the fact that Aslan had ruled and he had reigned over that land. They've forgotten who they were, and what it meant to be to be Narnian. We see this actually most poignantly in the trees. In the earlier books, the trees, they move, and they battle, and they eat up the dirt, and they, they walk. It's magical. But now, in the beginnings of Caspian, they, they're rooted. And they move no more, and they don't go to war. They're not eating up the ground. The magic has been lost. The dryads, the tree people, they're not dancing and singing anymore. The song, songs have gone quiet. It's into this state that Caspian finds himself, and he comes across Susan's horn, and he blows it and draws the children back to Narnia, but not just the children, also Aslan. And When he returns, renewal begins. If you've read the book, you know that Caspian is going to battle. He's, he's the champion of Narnia, and he's going to battle against the champion of the Telemarines, the king of the Telemarines, and they're going to battle hand-to-hand combat, and then battle erupts around them. The armies start to encircle them and fight, and who is it that comes to Narnia's aid? The trees. They start to move, and they encircle the Telemarines, and they come to the aid of Narnia. When Aslan has come, they're renewed. They're restored to the way that they were meant to live, to the way that they were meant to function. That's us. It's easy for us to forget who we are. It's easy for, for us to forget what it is that God has declared about us and who God is. It's easy to forget what Paul said in the earliest chapters of Ephesians, not just because it's been weeks, but even from week to week, it's easy for us to forget what God has declared about you. Subsequently, what that means for us. I think our propensity to forget, Paul knows this, and that's why he keeps saying, therefore. 
In fact, in chapter 4, next week we'll see therefore showing up again and again. And this week he points it out in the very beginning. Therefore is the first word of, chapter, of verse 25. And when the there is there, we're supposed to look to see what the there is there for. Therefore, it keeps reminding us. It keeps us, makes us go back and remember what Paul has declared about us, what God's word has said about who you are. And when we look in chapter 4, we hear that we are those who have been taught Christ to put off the old and to put on the new, that we have been renewed. We even hear it at the end of chapter 4 in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving. These are qualities of renewal. That's who we are, that because of what Christ has done, we have been renewed, and as renewed people, we are to live in light of that renewal. How we do that is with our words, with our thoughts, and with our hands. That's where Paul takes us, that as renewed people, we live with new words. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, it's really funny to me that Paul starts with our words and says, put away falsehood. Like, shouldn't this just be like, duh? <laughs> of course we put away falsehood. We're Christians. We're supposed to be true, truth tellers and, and trustworthy, right? That's what our words should be like. Why is Paul taking time to tell us, put away falsehood and put on truth? I think he's telling us this because it's so easy for us to embrace falsehood, to be promoters of falsehood. In 2001, George O'Leary was named the head football coach at Notre Dame. Now, I know Notre Dame is in Alabama, and they're not even Clemson, right, recently, but, but Notre Dame's a pretty prestigious coaching job, right? Tons of history, and there's the aura of, of Notre Dame, the fighting Irish, right, the Gipper, and all these sorts of, and so it's a sought-after position, and George O'Leary was named the head football coach. Now, I would imagine that probably none of y'all remember that George O'Leary was named the head football coach in 2001 because before he coached his first game, he was fired. And he was fired because it had been found out that he lied on his resume. He had fabricated the truth. He had embellished his career, all the things that he had done, and had been found out, and so they let him go. And, and what was the most fascinating thing to me about this wasn't that he was fired or that he even lied on his resume. It was what his brother said in his defense. His brother, speaking to the media, said this, Is anyone trying to tell me that resumes are truthful? In the America we live in, the willingness to lie on a resume is an indication of how much you want the job. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of problems with this, right? Like, not just the fact that he excuses the deceit, but that he's actually saying that the deceit is virtuous. That it actually reflects a desire, a longing for something that is good. And so we should just excuse it, put it aside, because, because his heart behind it is showing how much he wants the job. Y'all on the pulpit committee, if I would have lied on my resume, like, I wouldn't be standing here, right? It's not a reflection of how much you love, want the job. It's a reflection of your heart. How easy we are to embrace falsehood. And it's not just the world, it's us. I mean, think how easy it is to embellish. Just tell little half-truths. To, to 
reorient our words in such a way so that our image is defended and that we are propped up. It's so easy for us to embrace falsehood, not put it aside. For us to promote what is just a little bit untrue rather than to be truth tellers. That's why Paul tells us to speak truthfully. But you know what's fascinating is he doesn't just say say what is true because it's right to. He could have said that. But the motivation for why we are to speak truth is that we are members of one another. That's what he says at the end of verse 25. We are members of one another. That we belong to each other. And so what Paul is indicating is that the way that I use my words actually affects you. And the way that y'all use your words affects me. And it affects one another. That we are not just renewed persons, but we are renewed people that are to be marked by truth-telling, putting aside falsehood by embracing what is good. It goes on about our words in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That word corrupting, it can also mean obscene, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. There it is again. What is the motivation? It's y'all. It's one another. It's that our community wouldn't just be a people that would guard our words, but that we would use our words for the promoting and the benefit of one another. The building up of each other. Renewed words. That's how we are to live. But it's not just words that reflect our renewal, it's also our thoughts. Our thoughts. Now, I say thoughts because it's often our thoughts that anger resides, and that's where Paul goes in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Say that phrase, be angry and do not sin. Paul's quoting the Old Testament. It shows up in a number of different places in the Bible, that phrase. And what Paul is indicating by using this phrase is that the understanding of anger, the biblical understanding of anger is that not all anger is sin, right? Be angry and do not sin. And so the implication is that there is righteous anger. There is good anger. Anger like the anger that God reflects about oppression and injustice and sin. Anger that's appropriate when the weak are marginalized, when children are enslaved, when people are oppressed. That is good and righteous anger. That when we see those things in our world, that that is an appropriate response. But I don't know about y'all, but as soon as I hear righteous and good anger, it gives me a pass. <laughs> because all my anger must be righteous, right? <laughs> so that time I you know, snapped at my kids or, or I got angry with my wife, right? Well, clearly it was just righteous anger. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, Before we give ourselves a pass, we need to remember that if there's righteous anger, there's also unrighteous anger. If there's good anger, there's also sinful anger. And what does Paul, how does Paul describe it? In verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Unrighteous anger, sinful anger is the anger that we hold on to, that we stew over. Oftentimes it's anger that maybe was justified. But we hold on to it for so long that we're giving the devil an opportunity to take what was good and actually turn it and manipulate it so that now it is uncontrolled, unrighteous, sinful anger. 
We've seen this in our own lives. I want you to think about those, those times you've had a frustrating conversation. Maybe with your spouse before you walk out the door to work. Or maybe it was with a coworker before you're heading home. Or maybe it was with a parent or a child. And you have this frustrating conversation and you are in the right. Like legitimately, you are in the right. But do you just put it aside? That we hold on to it, right? We get in the car, we're driving to work, we're driving home, and we start thinking about it. We start stewing over it, and we think about what they said and what I wish I would have said and the zinger that I would have given to them and how I would have just slammed their argument shut and it would have all been over. And before too long, they're the devil, the very embodiment of the devil with horns and a tail and everything, right? Like, just hypothetically speaking. Right? That's what we do. We take little frustrations, little angers that at times may be appropriate and we hold on to them. We cling to them. And in doing so, we are actually giving an opportunity for the devil to turn them and make them sinful. That we are to be angry and not sin. That we are to put them away. That's why Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't hold on to it, but let it go. Now, I think we need to clarify something about that phrase. Because I imagine that for many uh, couples in this room, you have sought to apply that phrase in a biblical way. So you're having a discussion with your wife, say, I don't know, and, um, and it's 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, and you come to an impasse, a little disagreement. It's not heated. You just see a little bit differently, maybe about a new house or a new profession or, or where your kids should go to school or what clothes they should wear or what TV shows or, what, or anything like that. And, and you're just, just a little bit off. You're not lining up. But, but we're not going to let the sun go down on this, so we're going to stay up, right? And so 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning, right? And, and it's getting better, isn't it, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, has anyone ever had an epiphany of resolution at two in the morning? <laughs> no. No, so, so let, let me remind you what this passage really says. As a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine said, that Paul, doesn't, Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, not don't let the sun go down on your argument. You can disagree with someone and not be angry with them. Go to bed. (laughs) You can differ with them and not think that they are just a complete idiot. Please don't think that of your spouse. It's okay. Go to bed. Resurrect that conversation in the morning. I imagine you'll have a better conversation at 8 than you would at 2. But if it's anger, legitimate anger, don't let the sun go down on that. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be be done with it. Put it away. Put it aside. Do not let the devil have an opportunity. See, friends, this is what it means to live with renewed thoughts, not just renewed words. Well, Paul finishes it out with renewed hands. In verse 28, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is a fascinating verse. There's so much that we could talk about. Like the very fact that there are thieves in their community. Uh, that's the present tense, by the way, thief. Uh, so, so that'd be an interesting discussion. Like this renewed people 
are attracting people who need renewal? That'd be an interesting conversation, but we don't have time for that. We could talk about the value of work. Let him labor doing honest work. That work is good. That it's, a, it's creational. That's something we should seek after. We, we could talk about that, but, but that's for another time. No, instead, what I want us to focus on is the reason for our labor. Did you hear it in verse 28? Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Isn't that interesting? That the perspective of our work, the perspective that reflects a renewed life is that our work is not just for ourselves. For others. This is so different than the world we live in. In 2009, the president of Wake Forest University, he was reflecting on the students that were coming to his school and graduating. He was reflecting upon them and he said that most of the students were now trying to get into careers like finance and consulting and corporate law and other professions with high salary and the aura of success. That they were choosing their work primarily with the question, to answer the question, what job will help me to flourish? What job will help me to flourish? But why does Paul say we are to work? help others in need, to help others flourish. Now, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't love your job, and that you shouldn't be good at it, and that you shouldn't flourish. But that's not the only reason that we work. It's not the only reason that we labor. It's not the only reason that we toil, that, that we have this renewed sense of work, a renewed perspective that it's not just for me, but it's for others. And this is adjusting our perspective. The thief moves from a taker to a giver, and we're moved from consumer to helper. That the renewed community, we use our hands, our work, so we can be generous in seeking to help others. This is who we are. Renewed people with renewed hands and thoughts, words. But why do we do this? I mean, why does Paul take all this time? Why should we put this on? Why should we seek to live this way? Well, Paul tells us, he motivates us first by saying that we are to please the Spirit. That in living this way, we please the Spirit. Look at verse 30. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I gotta be honest, this is a strange verse to me. Because when I think of the Holy Spirit, the things I think about regarding the Spirit are things like that he seals us, that he's our comforter, that he reminds us of what Jesus taught, that he convicts us of our sin, but, but not that we grieve him. And yet that's exactly what Paul says. He says that our actions can grieve the Holy Spirit, and those actions are summarized in verse 31, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. In essence, it's sin. Sin grieves the Spirit. And so one motivation for us living as this renewed community is so that we would not grieve, or more positively, that we would please the Spirit. Now, now don't hear this as meaning that, that when we grieve the Spirit, He doesn't love us. Paul's not talking about our salvation because he actually says in that same verse that we are still sealed for redemption. 
that the seal, it, it hasn't melted away, it hasn't chipped off, that it's still there. But, but even in our sin, we can grieve him. And it's actually the fact that we can grieve him that shows he loves us. Think, think, about, think about your relationship with the person that you love. Your boyfriend or girlfriend, your fiancé, your husband or wife, when, when you first met them, when you were first seeking them out, pursuing them, right, what did you try to do? You tried to find out everything that you could about what they liked and what they didn't like, and you steered clear of what they didn't like, and you tried to do all those things they did like, right? So you, you were getting them flowers, and you're taking them out to restaurants, and you're watching movies that you'd never want to admit that you ever watched, right? And you're doing it because you love them, and they love you. You're actually seeking to do those things that please them, not grieve them. And when we hurt our spouse, when we hurt our beloved, when we hurt those that we care about, it's right for them to grieve over that. If they didn't grieve, if they were just indifferent, that wouldn't be love, it would be hatred. And the same is true with our relationship with the Spirit. See, we don't, we don't seek to please him so that he will love us. We seek to please him because he already has loved us. He has already redeemed us. He has already stamped us with that seal. That's why we seek to please him. That's why we seek not to grieve him. That's why we seek to live these renewed lives. Because he has already loved us. But, but that's not the only reason. There's another reason why Paul calls us to live these renewed lives. This other motivation, that's that we are recipients of grace. That's how Paul ends this passage in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Did you hear that? Why are we kind and compassionate and forgiving? Why do we live, to, live as these renewed people? Because God has forgiven you. Think about how amazing that is. God has forgiven you. He has forgiven me. He didn't forgive us when we were our most lovable or when we were our most kind or most compassionate. He loved us when we, are, we were our most unlovable and our most unkind, when we were his very enemies. I mean, do you remember what we heard in the assurance of pardon in Romans? While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Me and you, the ungodly. But Paul goes on, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Y'all, did you hear that? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God has forgiven us. That, that word forgiven, I, th I think as Christians, we just kind of pass by it. We we turn it into just a Christian buzzword and we ignore it and, and we don't think about how incredible it is that God would forgive us. I mean, think about how hard it is to forgive someone. The book of Jonah, right? that, that story we love, we love to tell our kids about, the flannel graphs, right? Do we still do flannel graphs? I don't think so. We do PowerPoint, right? But anyway, um, that story of Jonah, one of the main themes in Jonah is the theme of forgiveness, God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them about my grace. And what did Jonah say to God, remember? I knew you would forgive them. That's why I ran. I knew you would be gracious to them. 
to even them. That's why I didn't go to Nineveh. It was hard. Forgiveness is costly. Think about the, that hypothetical angry thought that you're having on your drive home. How much easier it is to, to hold on white-knuckled to our anger than it is to open our hands to forgiveness. Even when our anger isn't warranted, it's still hard to forgive. But think about Christ. When our sin and our grief and our misery was deserving of judgment, was deserving of his anger and his wrath, he forgave. And he forgave not begrudgingly, the Bible tells us it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and he scorned its shame so that grace would abound, that forgiveness would come so that our grief and our sin and our misery, that they would be no more, that you would be forgiven. That's why we live as renewed people. Because God declares you are forgiven. Your sins, they are no more. He didn't pour that wrath on himself, but he took it upon himself. Forgiveness is costly, and it cost Jesus his very life. That is why we live as renewed people, y'all. That is why we live with renewed words and thoughts and hands. That's why we live to please the Spirit, to live as renewed people that Christ has renewed us into because he has forgiven us, because we are new. The old is gone and the new has come. We are the forgiven, renewed people of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have forgiven your people. That you have showered us with love. That you have renewed us. That you are changing our words and our thoughts and our hands. That you are moving us to please the Spirit. That you are encouraging us to live as recipients of grace. Help us to continue to do that. Help us to love and cling to the grace and forgiveness that you have showered upon us. We praise you and thank you for your love. We pray in Jesus' name and God's